going to work out this time. Now, we've got several plants in the house. I want to focus on the dining room in particular. And there we have a monstera, we have a snake plant, and we have a pothos. I see a number of people nodding, other people don't know. If you don't know what they are, just think green plant, green plant, green plant. Now, we got the monstera from Costco. It was like 17 bucks. It was really sad when we bought it. Okay, some of its leaves were hanging. They were being held up by the plant. They're hanging all the way down to the ground. And, uh, but of course, we took it out of a warehouse, very unnatural. We put it in our house, which is still kind of unnatural. But near a window, near natural good light, we've been giving it water. Um, it's turned from unhealth to health. The leaves have picked themselves up. They've oriented themselves to the windows. The plant is doing well. But more than that, two new, um, they're called petioles, it's like stems, have bursted forth in the plant with leaves. They slowly unravel. We love watching them as a family to see how far they've kind of un, have unwound. So we see that the monstera, it's not just moved from unhealth to health. It's not just living, it's producing life. It's bursting forth with life. The snake plant, it was actually a gift from the samples, a housewarming gift. We are accepting them. And after, after like a week or two, we noticed something green growing in the soil. We thought the samples would give us a plant with a weed growing in it. Well, after another week, it turns out it's just a baby snake plant. There's this little snake plant that's bursting forth. The snake plant, like the monstera, not just alive, it is bursting forth with life. We played our part by giving it sunlight, giving it water. And then the pothos... It's actually cool. It's a gift from the skips. They propagated one of their plants to give it to us, which basically means it's like the baby pothos of one of their pothos plants. So all of our plants, they're not just alive, they're the fruit of life. They're not just living, they're bursting forth with life. And they're bursting forth with life after their own likeness. You see the monsteras producing monstera, the pothos, pothos, the snake plant, baby snake plants, one of the surest signs of health among the living is the production of life, at least the ability to produce life. This is true whether we're talking about plants or animals or people. Healthy living things produce life, and they produce life after their likeness, right? Apple trees produce apples, otters produce otters, people make little monsters. No, we produce people. It's also the case with God. God is fully alive and begets life within the fullness of his being. The Father eternally and necessarily begets the Son. The Father and Son eternally and necessarily breathe forth the Spirit. And then God, in a free act of sheer generosity, creates life outside of himself. God creates a world that reflects his character and glory. God creates a man, a life, after his likeness. We see life producing life after its likeness. Healthy things produce life. It's true with living plants in our home. It's true with the living God who's made a home inside of us. Life begets life after its likeness. It can't not happen. Galatians chapter five, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. beginning in verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to ask two questions of the text this morning. One, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? And two, how do we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? So one, what is the fruit of the Spirit? And secondly, how do we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? I'm going to give you a disclaimer on the front end in case you get worried during my sermon. My first point is like 70% of the sermon. It's basically got seven subpoints. You can probably guess what they are. But first, what is the fruit of the Spirit? We just heard it in verse 22 and part of 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But more than just what's on the list, we want to know what is this list? Now clearly, if you look at the fruit, Paul is talking about character qualities, right? A person who is loving and joyful and patient and they exude peace, they're kind, they're good, they have self-control. It is a virtue list that's set in opposition to the vice list that we saw um, right above, beginning in verse 19. The works of the flesh are obvious. Paul is setting them in opposition to one another. The works of the flesh, they lead to destruction. They reveal those who are in the domain of darkness. In contrast to that, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit that comes from life and leads to life. They are evidence of those who are in the kingdom of God, who have been united to His Son. But the question is, why does Paul call them fruit? Like, why doesn't he just call them character qualities? These are the character qualities of the Spirit. Well, for one, it would be harder to illustrate on a felt board. I wouldn't have received all the fun songs from you guys this week on the fruit of the Spirit. But a couple reasons, I think, why Paul uses this language. First is, fruit communicates life and likeness. Life and likeness. Fruit is the product of life, and it's made after the likeness of its source. Okay, healthy living things produce or at least have the ability to produce life after their likeness. So healthy apple trees, they produce apples, not mangoes, not bananas, not even pineapples, so close. They produce apples. And in fact, if an apple tree is not producing fruit in season, it would tell you that something is wrong. The tree is either unhealthy or potentially even dead. Healthy Trees produce life after its likeness. In calling them fruit, and specifically the fruit of the Spirit, Paul is showing us, he's bringing attention to the source of life and the outcome of being in that life. We can't separate these two things, the source of life and the outcome of being in that life. Think about it, if a living plant yields life after its likeness, how much more so would this be the case with God? In the Nicene Creed, we confess, in what is called the third part, We confess, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. We confess that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. Why? There, Genesis 1 and 2, the Spirit is hovering in the first creation, turning chaos into order, bringing forth vegetation and life, breathing life into man. In regeneration, new life, 
The Spirit is there, hovering over the chaos of your heart, bringing it into order, bringing forth the life God has called into existence by His Word. If a healthy, living tree, in a sense, must produce life, think about what will happen when the Spirit of life dwells inside of His people. It's not only possible to produce fruit, it's necessary and inevitable. You know, somehow, I think, at least in the South, I'm not sure if this is characteristic of other places, we've come to believe that it's possible to be a Christian and to go unchanged. Like, if somebody told you they got struck with lightning, 300,000 volts of electricity, and there were no signs, you would not believe them. They would be very holy. Well, if the Lord... The giver of life himself is dwelling in you. There will be signs. There will be life, new life, the fruit of life after the likeness of his son, the one from whom he proceeds in his scent. This is what the list is. It is the product, the produce even of God himself dwelling inside of us. The Holy Spirit is bringing forth the fruit of new creation right now. So Paul draws on fruit for kind of this obvious connection of source and outcome, life and likeness. And secondly, I think he's doing something that's redemptive historical here. So we got to think about the fruit of the Spirit, not just as verse 22 and part of 23, but as it's situated in the book of Galatians, as it's situated in the grand narrative of Scripture. Now, what has Paul been hammering the whole time in the book of Galatians? It's that we're justified, that is, we're forgiven, we're forgiven, we're declared righteous apart from works, apart from works of the law, simply by believing in Jesus. The Galatians, following the Judaizers, are inclined to submit themselves again under the law for life. Paul has been warning them that if they turn there, they want to find life, they will find death. Now, you might have noticed this, that when Paul talks about the flesh in verse 19, he calls them the works of the flesh. And yet what he talks about, what the Spirit produces, he very intentionally describes it as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is setting this contrast for us between what we get under the law by our own power. We will produce works of the flesh and what God himself has done for us in the gospel, giving us not only life, but the fruit of life. And so Paul is drawing from, as he's been doing in the book, Israel's history to show us, the, in a sense, the deficiency of the old covenant to produce what it required, but what God has now done in the gospel. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, again, Paul is using fruit here to draw on Israel's history to explain deficiency of the old covenant, what God has provided in the new. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of its stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Then down in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The plant he delighted in, he expected justice but, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. Israel was a vineyard that God had planted. Psalm 80 speaks very similarly. It describes Israel as a vine that was in Egypt that God had um, unrooted and brought over to plant in Canaan. 
God did everything externally necessary for Israel to thrive, to flourish, right? Giving her his law, his covenants of promise and regulation, the prophets and scripture, the sacrificial system, his temple. It's as though he put her in the best soil, near the best window with the freshest water. She was covered in his protection and his rule and his love. God rightly expected good fruit, but what he got was worthless, Where there should have been love and righteousness and justice, there were cries of despair. Why? The problem was not God. It was Israel. She was a bad vine, a bad tree. She yielded bad fruit. And as the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, bad trees bear bad fruit. They can't do otherwise. Now, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, in taking Israel from Egypt to Sinai before Canaan, yes, they were delivered up out of physical bondage, but in a sense, they were delivered to spiritual bondage. They were made further slaves to their sin as they were put under its power. This is because though the law instructed us how to be righteous, though it taught us how to love, it couldn't actually produce that in the lives of his people. In fact, in fact it inflamed our desires to the opposite. In looking at the law, we actually desire to covet to hate, to steal, to lust. And so what Israel needed was something more than external, right? More than water and soil and sun, more than law and regulation. She needed to be made into a new plant, to be engrafted into the better, truer vine who is Christ. She needed a new heart. She needed to be indwelt with the Spirit of God. These, Paul has been telling us, are the gifts of the new covenant. They come to us as a gift to be received by faith. To return back to the law would be not to have the ability to yield fruit. We would render God worthless grapes. So this is Paul's point. Christ is here. Forgiveness is here. The fruit of life is here. It's not only possible, it's inevitable. Because God himself, the source of life, is dwelling within us. He will yield life in us after the likeness of his Son The fruit of the Spirit, what is it? It is the product. It is the produce of our union with Christ as all of his benefits flow to us. God is giving us new life and conforming us to that life, which is the likeness of his glorious Son. It is the fruit of new creation. Think about it. In the first creation, God by his Son, the Word, and through his Spirit, created the world first and then created people. What God is doing now in recreation is recreating his people first in the world later. We actually experience the fruit of new creation now in one another's lives. As we experience each other's love and patience and peace, which is the love and patience of God, we are tasting of the world to come. We're experiencing its harvest now. So this is what the fruit is big picture, right? It's more than a silly song. It's God's power to subdue where there is chaos. It is his power to bring life where there was once death. It is his power to conform us to the image and likeness of his son, which he does through the indwelling of his spirit. That is the list. What's on the list? Seven fruit of the spirit. Um, Maybe I should say this now. I had it later. We're moving it up. You'll probably notice that it's fruit of the Spirit and not fruits of the Spirit. And that's because there's one source and there's really just one fruit. 
We're talking about through all these different terms, different ways of speaking about life in God and likeness after him. Okay, there is no love apart from being patient and kind and gentle. There is no joy apart from love. In a sense, you can't just grow in one of these. We actually grow in all of them through the same means, which is the means of the Spirit, his ordinary means, which we'll see later. And so it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit, because there's one source, there's one outcome. This is really different ways of talking about the same reality, that God is recreating us in the image of the Son. The first one we see is love. The first, not surprising on the list, is love. The other day, Haddon asked me, that's um, our oldest, he's five years old. He said, Daddy, what's your favorite thing about me? You know, just fishing for some compliments. <laughs> so, oh. I said, my favorite thing about you is you're my son. And because I like a little encouragement too, I said, Haddon, what's your favorite thing about me? <laughs> uh, I didn't get what I was expecting. Well, actually, normally he's like, you play, you play uh, Smash Bros with me or something petty. But I said, Haddon, what's your favorite thing about me? He thought it for a bit and he said, you love me. Yeah, it's kind of sweet. But at first blush, it's a little self-referential. <laughs> My favorite thing about you is you love me. <laughs> now, at first blush, it is a little self-referential, but when you think about it, think about those whom you love the most. What is it about them that attracts you to them? Is it not the love of God in them? Is it not this foretaste of heaven this reflection of God's character that they are willing to, even at the expense of themselves, desire and work for your good, that they love you. There's no surprise that love stands first and at the head of the list. It's for obvious reason. 1 John 4.16, John writes there, and we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. Our God is love. He has purposed love for us. The message that we've come to believe is a message of love, God's love to us and his son. To remain in love is to remain in God and for God to remain in you. The surest sign that you believe in this message of love, that you abide in the God of love and that his love is in you is that you are bearing forth the fruit of love. It can't not happen. The God of love has taken up his residence within us. Paul says in Galatians 5, this very chapter, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the one thing that God requires of us? It's that we love each other, that we would love our neighbor, that we would desire and work for their good to the glory of God. Again, friends, what the law couldn't do because it was weakened by the flesh, God himself has done. He makes it so that we can actually fulfill the intention of the law as we walk in the Spirit. We actually become a people of love. Galatians 5, verse 6, again here, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. This, I think, is such an encouragement. It means that anything Anything that you do in faith through love matters. It lasts. 
It doesn't matter if you're working or parenting, you're neighboring or serving, you're leading a D group or eating or cleaning, you're praying or playing. Anything you do in faith through love lasts. Conversely, anything that you don't do in faith and through love does not ultimately matter. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, to paraphrase him, if we speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, we are a noisy gong. If we have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if we have faith to move mountains but do not have love, we are nothing. We can give away all that we have, Paul says, to the poor until we have nothing, but if we do not have love, he says, we are nothing. All that matters is faith working through love. It is the fruit of having God's life and love in us. Love. Second, joy. Now, love is obviously a fruit of the Spirit, but joy, when you think about God, does joy come to mind? You ought to. God is the most joyful one, infinitely joyful. He lives in eternal, unblemished, blessed bliss. He doesn't simply live, he possesses the fullness of life. God is not missing out on anything. When you think about Christians, do you think about a people of joy? Or do you think about people who are bitter, angry, unhappy? Friends, we ought to be the most joyful of people. It's not because of what we own or where we work or how we look. Joy is, as you're thinking about it, it's like a deeply rooted contentment or happiness. Okay, it isn't circumstantial, meaning it doesn't ebb and flow with the changing tide. Not with loss or gain of home, loss or gain of work, loss or gain of life or friendship. Not with the weather, not with your college football's win-loss record. Right, its roots run deep. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, that we ought to rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, this doesn't mean that you're always happy and you're never sad, right? That won't be the case until we make it to the new heavens and the new earth and God himself wipes away our tears. If you've seen Inside Out, which is a great movie, the lesson that Joy learns in the film is that in this life, joy is often mingled with sadness, often if not always. As a Christian, we know why. It's because we experience daily the stain of sin and the curse. We often experience joy with sadness, but to this the Christian would add that sadness should also never be alone. It should always, for the Christian, be mingled with joy. This is because our joy is rooted in something deeper, unchanging, more meaningful than our painful circumstances. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, speaking of himself, but it's true for us that we can be grieving yet always rejoicing. How is that possible? It's because it's rooted in something more deep, something that does not change. What I love about Jesus on my cross have taken is it gets right to the heart of this idea of grieving yet always rejoicing. I'll encourage you to turn in your bulletins there to page nine to look at the lyrics with me as we think about how we can have joy in the midst of pain Verse 1 says that we're destitute, despised, forsaken. Why can we have joy? 
thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Why can we have joy? How rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Verse 2, foes may hate and friends disown me. Why can we have joy? Show thy face and all is bright. Verse 3, man may trouble and distress me. Why can we have joy? Twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Why can we have joy? Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Why on earth would we even want to sing verse 4? Go then earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service pain is pleasure. With thy favor loss is gain. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. We can have joy. Why? All must work for good to me. Verse 4, we can have joy in every station. Why? Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Our joy doesn't shift like sand because it's rooted in the rock-solid promises and character of God. That the Father looks upon you with infinite pleasure. That the Son, at the behest of the Father, came to die for you, to win you as his prize. That the Spirit of the Father and the Son has taken up residence inside of you, bringing forth newness of life. He is the guarantee of our salvation. Why can we have joy? Because none of that will ever be in jeopardy for a moment. You may lose your home, your relationships, your reputation. You will not lose the love of God. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? What can we complain about? NBC, are we a joyful people? Joy's roots run deep in the world to come, but its fruit ought to be bursting forth here and now. In a world like ours, we will often find ourselves regularly grieving. And yet for the Christian, we should always be rejoicing. God himself produces that fruit within us. Third peace. We see peace is not just for the number nines. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And peace is not just the absence of chaos. It's the presence of order. You see, avoiding conflict doesn't make you a peaceful person. It might just mean you're a coward. Just because you and your roommate or spouse don't fight, it doesn't mean that your relationship is healthy. Peace is about flourishing. It's not just about not hurting each other. It's about healing one another. The flesh is destructive for community. It desires and produces dissensions and factions, outbursts of anger, strife, hatred, jealousy. Sin is antisocial. It tears down the community. The Spirit nourishes the community. It holds us together in the bond of peace. It provides order and safety. You know, a place or a person is peaceful, I think because to be with them, it feels like being home. There's rest. It's a foretaste of our home to come. NBC, is this a place of peace? Is your home a place of peace? 
Are you a person of peace? Do you sow unity with your words, with your social media posts, or division in destruction? Do you seek to hurt or to heal? Are you actively trying to build up the body or tear it down? Patience. We'll do this one quickly. Patience is the fruit of trusting God. Trusting God with your circumstances, with the things that you desire. Be it a new job or relationship or children. It's the fruit of trusting God with your circumstances. It's also the fruit of trusting God with sinners who sin against you, who hurt you, who wrong you. It means being long-suffering, having a long fuse. You're not easily provoked or angered. And this is because you're trusting God with them. If they are a Christian, you know that God is at work in them just as he is at work in you. If they're not a Christian, you are entrusting them to God, praying that he would save them. If not, we know that he will inflict vengeance upon those who have done wrong to his people. We can be patient because we trust God in our circumstances and with one another. Kindness. Kindness, I think, is the most underrated character quality on this list. You look at it, you think cantaloupe, but it is watermelon. Okay? (laughs) Amen. To be kind to someone, it's to be generous beyond expectation, beyond what they deserve. Okay, the question here about being kind to someone is, are you giving them what you think they deserve, or are you choosing instead to be good to them? In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Don't miss that. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his wrath. No doubt in hearing the gospel, you need to be warned of the wrath of God, you initially were, um, became aware of your helpless state before him, that you deserve his just punishment. But if God were all wrath and no kindness, you would have not gone to him. You wouldn't have been drawn to him. He wouldn't have saved you in the first place. It is his kindness, not only that provides a way for salvation, but that woos us, that makes us want to flee from the wrath to go to him. Think about God's kindness in the gospel. Friends, with every fiber of your being, you opposed God. If you were in the garden, you would have eaten the forbidden fruit. If you were in Israel, you would have stoned the prophets. If you were in the crowds, you would have yelled, crucify him. If given the chance, you would have driven the nails through his hands. You deserve wrath, and yet God gives you kindness. In his kindness, he sent his son to die for sinners like us. And in his kindness, he delays his return. Aren't you happy he didn't come for some of us 10 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 50 years ago? God has delayed his kindness that more might come to repentance. It is God's exceedingly unexpected generosity towards sinners. And the Spirit is producing that likeness in us. NBC, are we a kind people? Do you only treat people how you think they deserve to be treated? Or do you seek to do good to them? Goodness. Quickly, it is like a moral purity that's conformed to the goodness of God. Faithfulness. The Spirit is actually producing in us the fruit of loyalty, of dependability, of steadfastness. 
Brothers and sisters, can your friends count on you? Isn't it incredible that God is faithful? That every promise made for God is a promise kept. While that is not true for us, he's producing that likeness in us. We ought to not be a flaky people, but a faithful people. Gentleness. Gentleness is to know how to care for something that's fragile. Okay, you handle fine china in a different way than you handle a paper plate. You have to know someone's frame in order to handle it or them with care. Think about how the Lord treats us, Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. God deals with us according to our weak, feeble, creaturely frames. He knows that we are made up from dust. Friends, this is how we ought to deal with one another, tenderly, gently. Paul gives us a specific example in chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, this is verse 1, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. You'll probably be able to see most clearly if someone is gentle, gentle depending on how they respond when they've been sinned. Just because you rebuke someone, just because you speak the truth in someone, doesn't mean that you're doing it in love. It doesn't even mean that the act itself is an act of love. If you can't speak painful truth, which is often a good thing, if you can't do it in a gentle manner, you probably shouldn't speak up at all. Paul is telling those who are spiritual to do it, you should bring someone along with you. We need to be able to handle one another with care. We don't rebuke each other for their sins in order to destroy them, but to build them up, to keep them away from that which would destroy them, that they might experience life. We ought to handle one another with gentleness, just as God himself is dealing with us. And lastly, self-control. Recall, the spirit desires one thing, the flesh desires something different. Paul says this in verse 17, that's why we often don't do what we want to do. Well, self-control, it is the fruit of God in us, giving us the ability with greater ease to say no to the things of the flesh. This ought to be more true for us the longer we've been Christians, that it is becoming easier for us to exercise self-control, to say no to the passions and desires of the flesh, and to say yes to the thing that the Spirit desires. It should become easier in our waging war against the flesh with the Spirit. Now, these are the fruit of the Spirit. God is actively at work in our lives, producing fruit of the new creation. They stand in opposition to the works of the flesh. I don't doubt that many of us look at the list with a mixture of encouragement and discouragement. We can be encouraged as we think about how God's grace is seen in our own lives, perhaps in the lives of those around us. Some of us might feel more discouraged about this list than even the works of the flesh. It's when I see that we're called to be patient, that God is producing that in us, that I uh, remember the fact that I'm given to outbursts of anger, that I can create strife, that I can be angry and wrathful. What I would say to us is that none of us should look at this list and be content. There should be a spirit of holy discontentment as we're desiring more and more to reflect the likeness of God. We should be encouraged. We should help one another by pointing out evidences of God's grace in our lives because we are prone to discouragement. What I'll say to the person who maybe feels overly discouraged, they're not where they feel like they ought to be, which is probably because they've not yielded to the Spirit. 
What I would say is that the Lord is the giver of life. He produces life where there was once death. He can take unhealth and move it to health. We, had, um, we have some plants in our front porch as well. They're just everywhere now, apparently. <clears throat> some planters. We're not quite the skips. They're at the nexus between living inside and outside. <laughs> These are outside. Some planters, flowers. We went away, I don't know, to the beach or something. So we're gone for a week. We came back and they're scorched. Like, there is no way these things are making a comeback. They are toast. Flowers are dead. They look more like mulch, okay? Well, Jess, she prunes them. She cuts back the unhealth. She waters them faithfully, even though these things look like they're dead. Like, there's no help. We should throw them out and start again. And sure enough, in the Lord's kindness, they burst forth with life. They make a comeback. They said it couldn't be done. (laughs) They're bursting forth with flowers. Friends, how much more so is it with God? He is in the business of creating life where there was once no life, of taking what is unhealthy and producing health. You might feel discouraged as you think about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I would just encourage you to consider God's new morning mercies. God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, but you must yield to him. I think this is what Paul is getting at even in the next verse. The law is not against such things. The law obviously doesn't forbid things like patience and peace and love and kindness. It doesn't actually uh, command these kind of things. More so the opposite. It tells us not to murder. That's something that you can command. That's something you can regulate. You can't really command or regulate something like love. Okay? It was intended to teach us how to love, but it couldn't actually produce that in us. It obviously doesn't stand against these things. And more than that, it couldn't actually produce that fruit in us. God must do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But it would be a misunderstanding to think that that means we don't have a role to play. Now, it would be foolish if Jess thought that she was the one that bursted forth these flowers on these, pl- these plants or that we caused our monstera you know, to grow these new um, petioles or these leaves It would be naive also and untruthful if we said we didn't do anything. We put it in good light. We gave it good soil. We watered it. Such is the case with our spiritual lives. We can't produce the fruit. God has got to go to work. But that doesn't mean that we are without a role to play. We can't create the fruit. We cultivate it. So how do we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? One, we kill the flesh. Two, we keep in step with the spirit we kill the flesh we keep in step with the spirit this is basically an echo of my last sermon if you want to hear more on that would encourage you to go back and listen to it first we kill the flesh beginning in there verse 24 now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires the flesh again that's the old part of us that thing that doesn't desire or do the things of god And when we think about sanctification, that's being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. There are really two parts of it. We would call one mortification. That's killing. It's killing sin. It's killing the flesh. There's another part called uh, vivification. That's the coming to life. Using the ordinary means of grace that the Spirit of God might give us life and greater degrees of life. This is about mortification. It's about killing the flesh. Paul regularly uses this language. Colossians 3.5 put to death kill it put to death what belongs to your earthly nature nature 
Romans 8.13, Paul says that by the Spirit we should put to death the deeds of the body. Jesus, I think, very, speaking very similarly, Luke chapter 9, tells us to pick up our crosses daily. There is this daily putting to death of the old man and its desires. But look at verse 24 again. What Paul says is interesting. Those belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So yes, it's true in one sense we need to be actively killing the flesh, daily waging war against the old man with the spirit. But what Paul is stressing here, the first thing we've got to grasp is that the flesh is already dead. It's done. If you belong to Christ, that is if you have been united to him by faith, your flesh died long ago. When at the cross, it was accomplished and applied in our conversion. Accomplished at the cross, we were crucified with Christ and it's applied in our conversion. This is an echo of what Paul said, you probably remember Galatians chapter two, verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the mystery of union with Christ. Then when Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelt us, we became so wrapped up in the life of Jesus that his history becomes ours. His perfect life became ours. His payment for sin, ours. His death on the cross, ours. His resurrection and ascension, ours. His righteousness, ours. His relationship to the Father becomes ours. Our life becomes so wrapped up with his that when he hung upon the tree, it's as though we were there with him. Because Christ's spirit indwells us, it was not just Christ on the cross, it was Christ and his people. We died with him. You see, on the cross, Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin. We believe this. This is what we would call the doctrine of justification, that we can be forgiven and declared righteous because Jesus Christ himself was punished in our place. It is given to us as a gift from God. This is the foundation of the gospel. But it's not the whole news of the gospel. Jesus didn't just die for the penalty of sin. He died also to deal with its power and its presence. It was there upon the cross that our flesh with him died. This is how we can be raised to newness of life, how we can be conformed to the image of his son. Not just the penalty of sin was taken care of, but its power, its presence. You see, the first step in killing the flesh is knowing that it's already dead, that Christ Jesus has done it, that it becomes ours, ours as we are indelt by the Spirit now, Paul is not saying that the flesh doesn't continue to exert influence, that it doesn't pull on us. We saw this in verse 17. The flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. What Paul is saying here is that your flesh, your sin, they've lost their rule over your life. Whereas once before you didn't have a choice but to answer to their beckoning, now by the spirit's power they are dead to you. They don't continue to reign over you. We have the victory of newness in life in the resurrection of Jesus. We need to begin by considering them dead. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 8 through 11, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The first step in killing our sin, our flesh, is considering it dead, making a break with it, knowing that it no longer has power over us. If you've ever lost someone in your life, whether it's somebody you love or someone you maybe didn't quite care for, over time, they lose their sway on you. Now this is, of course, it's sad in the cases where we lose someone we love. But as there's distance, you're, they continue to, they cease exercising a type of power over you. You're not making your decisions based off them. You're not thinking about them as much anymore. This is a sad reality of life in this world, but it's the reality nonetheless. What Paul is saying is that our flesh is dead. There has been a decisive break. Over time, it should be bearing less and less influence on us. And again, we're not talking about losing a loved one. We're talking about the old man, the person who is intent on our, our destruction. Paul is saying to be done with them for they are dead. So the old man may continue to call, but we don't have to answer. His power is no more. He died on the cross with its former passions and desires. Sin's rule and its reign has come to an end in the life of the people of God. Now, do we continue to sin? Yes. We're not yet what we one day will be. But we're also not what we once were. Paul is saying the life of practicing the works of the flesh is no more. A life of producing fruit in the Spirit is here. We were dead in Christ. We're alive through His Spirit. NBC, do you consider your flesh dead? Do you continue to answer sin's call as though it still has power over you? I would encourage you to think about the old you on the cross. Keep him or her there. Do not resuscitate that which seeks to kill you. This is the first step in cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. It's knowing that our flesh has lost its power over us. We don't submit to its call. We yield ourselves instead to another, to the Spirit of God. So we kill the flesh. Rather, we know it's dead. We keep it dead. And we keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If, don't miss that, if we live by the Spirit. Paul assumes that everything he's been writing in this book is intended for the living. If you're going to try to cultivate or produce love and peace and joy and kindness inside of yourself, apart from being alive, you will find nothing but frustration. Under the law, you will yield the works of the flesh. Paul is assuming everything he's writing is to the living. If you are alive, if the Lord of life has given you newness of life, well, then the fruit of the Spirit is not only possible, it's inevitable. We simply need to keep in step with his leading. Paul, obviously, is picking up the imagery of walking. We saw it in verses 16 and 18. We said this last time that walking speaks to um, direction, the Spirit is taking us somewhere into the fullness of new creation as He's recreating us into the people of God. And it speaks to power, not just where we're going, but how we're getting there. The Spirit Himself carries us along as we cling to Him by faith. 
And specifically, as we saw last time, in faith we rely upon God to produce fruit through the means of grace. They're ordinary. The Spirit works in ordinary means. The public preaching of the Word, the private study of the Word, the public, the corporate prayer, private prayer, confession of sin and watchfulness, faithful covenant membership as we hold one another accountable, speaking the truth to each other. We keep in step with the Spirit, not the other way around. He is intent on keeping us from those things that would destroy us. We listen to Him. I think this is why Paul jumps immediately into application. Not only let us keep in step with the Spirit, but let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, the flesh intends to lead a community to destruction, to inflame our desires such that we care about ourselves, we become conceited and arrogant, we provoke each other toward sin and anger, we envy what each other has, we're discontent. But when we follow the Spirit instead, what we get is the fruit of life. The Spirit continuing His work of new creation in us. And I just love this imagery of walking because of how ordinary it is. And think about the Spirit walking with us. If you ever walk with children, you know that you have to accommodate to their pace. Like, if you walk too fast with a kid, they'll fall down. I've heard it happens. I don't know. (laughs) Friends, the Spirit knows our frame. He leads us in such a way that we can follow him because we follow him by his power. He leads us in such a way that we want to follow him because he does the work of wooing us. He leads us to where we want to go because it's away from death and into life. The Spirit is leading us into the fullness of the new creation, into the image of Christ, into fellowship with the Father. This happens as we yield to him by faith. He is leading us there. He is creating the fruit. We simply need to cultivate it. We put ourselves in position for the work. We kill the flesh. We keep in step with the Spirit. We do this all by faith. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, the giver of life, will do what he does. He will produce life in us after the likeness of Christ. It can't not happen. If we are alive, we will yield the fruit of life. We will be transformed into the likeness of the Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. That though we deserved your justice, though we deserved condemnation, that in your kindness, instead, you sent your Son to save us from our sins. And not just the penalty of our sins, but from its power in presence. That your Spirit is actively working that reality in our lives right now. Father, I pray that we would be a people who desire more and more to yield, to produce, um, to have produced in them the fruits of the Spirit. God, I pray that we would be a loving people, a joyful people, a kind people. May we be a faithful people. Father, I pray that all the more we would give ourselves to the means of your Spirit, that we would seek to kill the flesh, that we would seek to keep in step with your Spirit. We pray that he would lead us in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.